not judge, lest you be judged. Those words roll off the tongue so easily, don't they? When they're leveled at another person. Yet that statement has become so familiar to us, so cliche, that too often it rolls off our conscience like beaded up water. It's the kind of scripture, the kind of statement that we freely give, but are pretty reticent to receive. Ever placed yourself in the judge's seat only to find yourself self-condemned? How quick we are to vindicate ourselves and condemn others. We've become incredibly proficient at passing judgment, haven't we? I have, you have. Sometimes it's inadvertent. Uh, we really don't mean to come off as judgmental people, yet whether it is done knowingly or unknowingly, there are occasions when our words can do damage to the lives of others. Careless words can ravage churches, drive unbridgeable wedges in relationships, and destroy another's dignity as an individual of value and worth in God's eyes. Now, too many people have been left drowning in the wake of insensitive comments. Too many flickering candles have been doused by the cold water of religious bigotry and legalism. Too many potential servants have been kept from the kingdom by self-righteous zealots. Haven't we all been a victim at one point or another? Yet at the same time, if we're honest, most of us would have to admit that we have also been the perpetrator of insensitive and uncaring words. We wish that we could take them back Unfortunately, we often can't. But perhaps our greatest responsibility is to learn from our past and determine to allow God to change us in the present in order that we might become more like Christ in the future, okay? Last week, I preached one of the hardest texts of Scripture that I have ever had to preach. It was difficult, but I believe necessary in light of the societal slide that we are faced with every day. Undeniably, it is God's truth. But it's also a hard truth. So today I want to balance that message with a strong reminder of another important aspect of God's truth, which I alluded to at the end of last week's message. In our zeal to reinforce the truth of God's word concerning well, the issue at large last week, homosexuality, many of us, were not, if we're not careful, we can be blind to the effects our words have upon people who may struggle in this area. And so people with whom we should desire to share the blessings and the richness of life in Christ, amen? People with whom we may one day share an eternal inheritance. People who Christ came to redeem and whose sins like ours can be wiped away by faith in Christ, amen? There are Christian men and women in our midst who may harbor intense feelings of shame, deep-rooted guilt, untold anxiety every time they hear the word homosexuality, people who have been personally involved in or presently tempted by the experience of choosing a lifestyle. But when the people of God unwittingly use derogatory terms and designations to describe those who have been part of or possibly still are tempted by this lifestyle, they pierce the hearts of those who readily recognize what they've done, some of which have tried desperately to put it behind them. So every careless word can push the knife of accusation a little deeper and twist it a little harder. 
and those who may be harboring a long-kept secret which they may have been unable to release for fear of the church not accepting them are driven a little further into their shell. The stigma of homosexuality may seem almost insurmountable to a person who has been involved in it and longs for change. The behavior may in fact be years behind them, but the memories are fresh, they tear at the soul, and the daily conflict refuses to go away. And often feelings of loneliness and abandonment accentuate the turmoil. And unless that person is able to successfully deal with that struggle with sin and fully experience the healing of, of God's hand, that pain can remain for a long, long time. And my friends, we, the church, must be there for them. That's what the body of Christ is all about. And the place we must begin is to alert ourselves to our own hidden judgmentalism. And this applies not only to that sin, that issue, but every sin in a person's life, any sin, and the opportunity for God's forgiveness. Too many Christian men and women have harbored the feeling that they're second-class citizens in God's economy because of their past sin of any stripe. Even worse is that many feel absolutely unable to break into the Christian community because somehow this particular sin seems to be regarded as the worst of all known sins, almost unforgivable. Even though you and I may know that to be inconsistent with Scripture, it is extremely difficult for many people to accept that forgiveness based on what they see and hear from the church at large. Friends, God's forgiveness in Christ is complete. It is total. And every one of us must reach out and get a firm grip on that truth. In our passage today, Jesus teaches us a few things about the attitude of accusation. And there can be no better instructor than Jesus, can there? No greater mentor than Jesus. He is the truth. We cannot argue with him and win, can we? You ever try? Not an easy thing. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 8. And verses 1 to 11 this morning, out of the four Gospels, I want you to know that John is the only one who records this occasion. And beginning in verse 1 and 2. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. Let's unpack this text a bit. So it was at the close of the Feast of Tabernacles that this incident took place according to our English translations. Uh, the feast had been going on for eight days, okay? So this is the end of the feast, the last day of the feast. Jesus had been teaching in the temple. Actually, it was more like debating, okay? The scribes and Pharisees were hounding him, trying to trap him in his words, and yet they could not trap him. In fact, they had sent out officers to seize him and they returned empty-handed and dumbfounded because of Christ's arresting wisdom. Just look back a couple of verses into chapter 7 and look at verse uh, 43. Verse 43, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. 
Now it was morning, dawn, the air probably brisk and the ground moist with dew. The activity of the day just beginning to come to life. Scattered sounds of people moving and gentle voices greeting each other in the street. Many of them moving toward the temple court where a lone, gentle, but firm voice could be heard. It was a recognizable voice, one that had authority. It was not the voice of a scribe or a Pharisee. There was something more authentic about this man's voice. It was something more inviting about this man's voice. It was the voice of a master rabbi, a master teacher, one who held multitudes captive for hours with his teaching and one who still captivates people today. It was early, but people gathered anyway to hear what this man had to say. This prophet, this Messiah, it was never too early for his anxious hearers, nor was it too early for his anxious accusers. It's interesting that when you are being accused and judged, any opportunity is a good one, no matter what time of the day. As they listened intently to his marvelous words, a disturbance broke the early morning stillness and the beast of judgmentalism reared its ugly head and roared. Verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act now, right here is where we uncover the ugliness of a judgmental spirit and the principles that we need to counteract it, okay? First principle, number one, we must temper our aggressiveness against sin with a sensitivity toward people, okay? That's in verses three and four here. The, look at the physical aggression, first of all. In verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, okay? I seriously doubt that this woman came willingly. Do you think she came willingly? So picture the scene now. It's daybreak. There's a crowd of people listening to Jesus teach. And into the middle of this gathering barges another group with malice in their hearts and murder on their minds. I believe that they were dragging this girl by force. In fact, the Greek word for brought in that text has that connotation. They were forcibly dragging her there. And they pushed their way into the middle of this crowd and dragged her right up to Jesus and standing her right in front of him and all the world to see, the message reads this way, they stood her in plain sight of everyone. Now there she stands, clothed in little but humiliation. Likely devoid of much apparel, but totally drenched in shame. Adulteress, caught in the act, they charge. And they proceed to sanctimoniously outline every filthy detail of her sin. Friends, I know the debate on the issue of homosexuality that we talked about last week and gender identity is serious business. Obviously, after last week's message, you know how serious I think this is. And I am not naive to the implication of a soft stance on the truth. But the fact is the church needs to repent of its physical hostility and its verbal irresponsibility toward people engulfed in sin. Picture yourself 
in this woman's shoes. How would you feel? Joe Dallas, in a pamphlet, writes these words. He says, you remember Jonah who had an extraordinary calling to deal with a group of people he didn't want to deal with at all? Remember that? In fact, he so wanted out of that calling that he went through extraordinary lengths to get out of it. And God went through even more extraordinary lengths to bring him back into that calling, didn't he? But even then, he preached what must go on record as probably one of the world's worst evangelical sermons, you know, in, in terms of what modern-day evangelicalism would say. Destruction's coming, destruction's coming, destruction's coming. Good night. End of message. Turn or burn, right? No altar call, no visitor card, no follow-up, just you're going to burn. I've done my part, God, now I'm gone. In fact, we read in Jonah's book that he went and got himself a front row seat to watch the barbecue. Right? That's what, that's what Joe Dallas says. And then lo and behold, from the king on down, Nineveh repents. They all repent. The whole nation. Jonah goes ballistic. He said, I don't believe this, God. You called me to come out here and tell these people that they're going to burn. I did my part and you did not do yours. You called them to repentance. You see, Jonah cared more to see the destruction of a people than he cared to see them redeemed. How many Christians today, Joe says, are afflicted with the Jonah syndrome? To hear some of us talk, you'd think it's more important to politically defeat homosexuals than it is to see them one into the kingdom of God. And that ought not to be. Wise man once observed that the heartfelt compassion that hastens forgiveness matures when we discover where our enemy cries, where our enemy cries. This group of self-righteous, scripture-wielding hypocrites here in John 8, they had no interest in how this woman felt at all and therefore had no ability to forgive her for her sin. Do you know where your enemy cries? Or those in opposition to us? We're quick to condemn the sin, yet have we ever taken the time to discover the despair or the loneliness or the emptiness that may precipitate the outward behavior? Because that's part of it too. Look at the public verbal aggression in, in verse 3, second half of verse 3 and verse 4. They brought the woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Talk about shame. She was the central focus of attention now in this crowd. Have you ever been called to the front of the classroom when you were a kid and humiliated before the whole class? Now, none of you guys ever had that. I did. You remember what that felt like if you did? Imagine how this woman felt. In the middle of this multitude, they haul out the dirty laundry, her dirty laundry. This woman was caught in the act of sin. In the very act, she was literally taken with shame upon her. I'm surprised they waited for her to get dressed. They just dragged her out there. Now what baffles me is how in the world did they catch her in the very act unless this was a setup? How? The whole affair reeks of a trap set to snare not the woman, but Jesus. The woman was just a tool. 
The language indicates here that she had a continuing character as an adulteress. In other words, they could count on her to mess up. And they waited. And they watched. And they struck. How else would someone have been caught in the very act? The question I have is, where's the guy? Where's the guy? A judgmental spirit is actively aggressive against the one that they want to judge. It cares little for the feelings of those that it involves. As Christians, we can never condone sin. I'm not going soft on sin. You know that. We can never condone it. In fact, we're mandated to stand against it in the scripture. Yet how we oppose it is very critical, isn't it? Again, Joe Dallas writes, there is a time for anger. And if we can look at the state of affairs today and not feel angry, there is something wrong in our perception. But as James, the Lord's brother, wrote in James chapter 1 and verse 20, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That's an important verse. We must temper our aggressiveness against, this, against sin, any sin, with sensitivity toward people. Then, secondly, here's the second principle, principle number two, we must adjust our uncaring attitude and alleviate the unfounded accusations. So verse 4, again, and down to verse 6. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this. Now, here's the clarification, verse 6, right? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. They weren't concerned with the woman at all. They wanted to accuse Jesus. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. Note their attitude here. After insensitively thrusting this adulteress into the public eye and before Christ, we see the real motive here. They weren't out to get the woman. They were out to get the Christ, right? They didn't believe in him. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. Can't you hear the sarcasm in their voice? They said to him, teacher, so-called teacher, rabbi. I can hear the attitude, can't you? They hated the fact that people flocked to Jesus. His teaching was light years ahead of theirs. It had authority. It was relevant. It was good news. Their words were self-serving. They were hypocritical. They hated the fact that they were losing their audience, and so they taunted him. Teacher, what are you going to do with this woman? This woman was caught in the very act of sin that the law speaks to. This same disgusting mindset can be found today, can't it? Any church or believer who adopts and applies Jesus' attitude of grace and love when dealing with sinners is opening themselves up for vicious attacks. Not by the world, but by others within the church. 
others within the ranks of Christendom. It's a fact to preach true biblical grace is risky, risky business. The late Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor of Westminster Chapel for many, many years, was a biblicist of the first order. Few would qualify as being more conservative than him. For 12 years, he taught the book of Romans. Imagine that. From that pulpit that he had, and no one would dream of classifying his expositions as liberal or casual, not by any stretch. Yet, I want you to listen to a few of his remarks on Romans 6, verse 1, which says, you know what that verse says, right? What shall we say then? Shall we sin all the more so that grace might increase? May it never be. So he's commenting on this verse. He says, quote, There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do, that you can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. He says, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in that way, then you had better examine your sermons again. And you had better make sure that you are really preaching the salvation that is offered in the New Testament to the ungodly, to the sinner, to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, to those who are enemies of God. And then he concludes this way. There is a kind of dangerous element about the true presentation of the doctrine of salvation, unquote. There's no question about it. If you are a presenter of grace in all its beauty, in the way that Christ showed it to people, it is risky business. As one man has observed, it brings grace abusers as well as grace killers out from under the rocks, both of those groups. It is cheap grace that justifies the sin. It is true grace, however, that seeks to justify the sinner. Let me repeat that. It is cheap grace that justifies the sin, but it is true grace that seeks to justify the sinner. Friends, Jesus defeated sin, and he defended people. He never made a concession for sin, yet he never lacked compassion for souls. And nor should we. Look at this accusation against this girl again. Now the law of Moses commanded to stone such women. What do you say, Jesus? And there was no question about that she was guilty. She was caught in the very act. And Jesus never counted the charge, did he? He never countered it. He accepted their terms. He did not, however, enter into their game. They were trying to trap him by setting up an impossible situation. They were twisting the scripture and the situation to fit their own hypothetical or hypocritical agenda. Verse 5, now in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Hear, hear the the, the setup that they're trying to put together? Law says this, Jesus, what do you say? Leviticus 20, 
Verse 10 says this, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. They should have been dragging that guy there, not the woman first. They should have been dragging them both there, right? Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. That's what the law said. Again, the question is, where's the guy? If she was caught in the very act, that means he was too. Note the trap. Here's the woman. She is guilty. The law says to stone her. What do you say, Jesus? The next verse really gives us the heart of this scene. Verse 6, and it's the accusation against Jesus, as I said. They were saying this to test him so they could accuse him. That wasn't anything new, by the way, that they, they used something to test Jesus. You can, I'm going to rattle these off. So if you're taking notes, take them fast. Matthew 16, 1. Matthew 19, 3. Matthew 22, 15 to 18, Matthew 22, verse 35, and Luke chapter 10, verse 35. Those are all texts that show how they were trying to test him on many other occasions. They were ruthless and relentless, and they wouldn't stop. And the word is used in an evil sense, this word test, and it implies leading him into sin. In other words, they were trying to get him to sin. You remember another situation like that? Back in the Old Testament, in Daniel, when they were trying to get Daniel to sin so they could accuse him, and the only way they could figure out how to do it is to make some bogus rule that he would have to break in order to serve God. This smacks of this same kind of thing. They were really accusing him. The attitude of accusation such as painted here, you know where that's rooted? That's rooted right in the evil one. The evil one. Satan himself, because he is called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. These accusers hated Christ and his teaching, and they wanted to catch him in his own words. Watch this, chapter 7 in John, just one chapter back, verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, Jesus says to them? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? So Jesus called them on the fact that they didn't carry out the law. So now they're turning the tables on Jesus and they're checking to see if he's going to carry out the law. Jesus had earlier called into question their tradition of reinterpreting the Mosaic law. Now they're going to show him that he would do the same thing. Here's the dilemma, okay? If Jesus refused the punishment of death, he would be accused of contradicting the law. If Jesus went along with them, then he would lose the crowds and his reputation for compassion. He would also be accused of breaking the Roman law, which did not allow the Jews to execute anyone. So here he is, caught in this dilemma that they posed, and they thought they had him, but Jesus does this incredible thing that I absolutely love. He averts their accusations. And you know how he does it? Look at what it says in verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. That would tick you off, wouldn't it? So here's the third principle. 
when it comes to judgmentalism. We must avert the hateful accusations by adopting an apathetic ear. Now, Jesus was not apathetic about this situation, but he was apathetic about their bogus accusations and this test that they were putting him in. Again, verse 6, uh, Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he was without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. As they pronounced sentence, Jesus provides silence. I love it. I love it. He stoops and writes in the dirt. He put them off. He turned an apathetic ear toward their unsympathetic charge. He was unimpressed with them. This is the only place in Scripture, by the way, where Jesus had such a reaction. I think he was so shocked by their hardness and coldness that he stayed silent for a long, long time, and he just wrote in the sand. His silence spoke louder than words. And ours will as well. You know how much judgmentalism would be averted if we adopted this attitude in our own personal lives? When people try to draw us into a, a conversation of condemning others, and we all fall prey to it, don't, don't we? We all do. Because we're human. We're sinful human beings. It's part of our base nature. But if we adopted this attitude, if whenever someone started gossiping or bad-mouthing another person, we just shut up and turned away, Oh, we bent down and started writing in the dirt? <laughs> how, how quickly would that silence the conversation? We need to adopt the attitude that says, don't put me in the judge's seat. I'm not interested. That's God's job, right? In other words, that's above my pay grade. The early church father, Jerome, once wrote these words, he said, quote, Beware of an itching tongue and ears. Do not detract from others or listen to detractors. No one likes to bring reports to an unwilling listener. Right? An arrow never lodges in a stone, but it sometimes recoils and wounds the shooter. Unquote. They were about to be wounded in this text. Jesus' silence was the calm before the storm. What he wrote is impossible for us to determine. But we know it was important because he did it twice. He stooped down and wrote twice. I think the silence and the writing incensed them. They kept pushing this issue. Come on, Jesus, what do you say? Do you agree with Moses? Should we stone her? What is your teaching on the subject? Come on, friend of sinners, light of the world. Should we follow the law or should we let her off easy? Come on, Jesus, we want an answer. What do you say? Look at verse 7 again. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he was without sin among you, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Enough said, end of conversation. Jesus neither satisfied their shallowness 
nor did he sidestep justice. He brought them all face to face with a very deep spiritual truth that none of them, not a single one of them, was qualified to pronounce condemnation upon this woman. None of them. They were in no position to judge her. And you know, last week I preached on Romans chapter 1 to the end of the chapter, but if we follow up and you look at chapter 2 of Romans, it fits right into this scenario. Chapter 2 of Romans, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, he says, Paul says, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 11 of that same chapter says, For God shows no partiality. These self-style accusers became the self-accused. They were living in glass houses and they were trying to throw stones. And every one of them deserved what they wanted to do to this woman. And they left one by one, oldest to youngest. My guess is that the older, more respected left first because they were answerable to more sin. They were wise enough to know that they could not stand up to the qualification. They all had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Just like all of us do, right? Someone recently wrote, before we can go into the culture and address its sins, God calls us to look at our own sins, repent of what immorality exists within our own walls, and recommit to biblical standards of holiness, unquote. Again, Joe Dallas in this pamphlet writes, it may well be that the immorality and moral weakness within the body of Christ has caused us to abdicate our moral authority to speak to the issue of our times. Perhaps we, having been compromised, have relinquished our position of authority and thus our influence in a fallen culture. Those are words worth thinking about, aren't they? If, is the answer then to simply withdraw and be silent, he says? Oh no, it's to reform. Another word for repent. It's to do exactly what Jesus did here. Jesus didn't say, don't go out and try to remove that speck from your brother's eye. He did say that before you do it, have a look at the log in your own. Today, God is calling the church to repent of her own immorality in order to speak with fresh authority to the moral issues of our time and return to the biblical standards of holiness, unquote. Amen? Do you know how that people are leaving the church in droves? Millennials, especially, leaving the church in droves. And they're adopting this, this culture of immorality. I don't think, I think it's because it's a knee-jerk reaction to the abuses that they've grown up with in the church. And so they're lost like sheep without a shepherd. And they, and they totally put their hands off to the truth when we try to share it with them and they get very hostile about, the, about it. I read, I read a Facebook post the other day that made me shake in my shoes. The language was so bitter, was so argumentative, was so against God. 
that I believe that if, if God struck people dead with lightning on the spot when they blasphemed him, this guy would be dead right now. It was that bad. And this is a person that grew up in the church. I think there must have been quite a stillness that came over that crowd. No sound but the dropping of stones and the dragging of feet. Jesus never looked up. He, he spoke the truth and he stooped down to write. And again, we don't know what he wrote. We have no idea what he wrote. Some people have conjectures, like maybe he wrote down all their sins. I doubt that, but hey, listen, want a good practice? The next time you're ready to lambaste someone or condemn someone or speak badly about someone or judge someone, you know, what you should do is we should all at the end of the day write a list of our sins and then we should confess them to God and repent of them. And the next time we feel like judging someone, take out that list and read it. I bet our attitude would change. Look at what we've been forgiven for. Jesus had a way of clearing out a crowd, you know. Conviction does that. Jesus and the woman are now left in the middle of the original group of people who came to hear him teach. And I can't imagine what that must have been like. The purity of God in human flesh stooping down in the dirt next to what one man called, quote, the saddest thing in all human life, convicted impurity, unquote. The people must have wondered, what will he do with her? I mean, if she's guilty, there's no question about that. What next? Donald Gray Barnhouse once said, and you've heard me quote this before, that love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes downward is affection, but love that stoops is grace. Jesus had stooped for this woman. But what would he do with her now? Though no one else qualified to condemn her, he did. He was God. He was pure. He was the only one left in that circle because he was the only one without sin. Even though her accusers had gone, her guilt still remained and her shame probably still was stinging her. Even if no one else condemned her, she condemned herself. I'm sure of it. But Jesus, the only one worthy of condemning her, did not. Although he had the power and the authority to pass judgment, he did not. He chose rather to go to the cross for her. That's what he chose. He didn't condone what she did. He didn't say that she was innocent. He didn't allude to her innocence. He didn't release her from sin's consequences. You know what he did? He freed her from sin's control. His final words were not be of good courage. He didn't say go in peace. Your faith has saved you. He simply sets her free to live a new life. He can and will do the same thing for you. He can and he will. Jesus said neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And he could have ended it there. But he said go and sin no more. He didn't deny the sin. And as we deal with issues like abortion and homosexuality and suicide and adultery or any other sinful behavior that we, we must remember that there are moments in our lives when we all get caught in the very act, don't we? 
It may not be any of those particular sins, but it's sin nonetheless. And how do you want to be treated? With the stones of justice or the Christ-like arms of mercy? That is how you and I should treat others. Verse 10. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. I want to ask you today, if the world wants to know what Jesus' heart is toward homosexuals or any sinner, where do you suppose those people in the world should look? In the Bible, that's what you're going to say, right? No, uh, that's not what I'm talking about. Yes, in the Bible, but who is the living, breathing, application, embodiment of what the Bible says in this world right now? It's the church, right? It's the church. Where should the people of the world look if we want to know what Jesus' heart is towards sinners? Ideally, they should see it in the Christian community, in us, in you, in me. Earlier in this gospel, John described Jesus as being full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. These two phenomenal qualities of Christ's life, writes one man, may appear contradictory, but are really at their best when they coexist together. As followers of the one whose name we bear, it is incumbent upon us to be the visible expression of his heart and his mind on this earth. The challenge then is to be like Jesus, full of grace and truth. So when it comes to sin, there can be no concession. But when it comes to people, we must lack no compassion. He came to heal, not to wound, to comfort, not to condemn, to reveal the grace of God, not the wrath of God, not yet anyway, to save, not to stone. He came the first time to seek and to save that which was lost, not to judge. Just read it in John 3, 16 and 17. We have the same marching orders, you and I, to acknowledge grace and affirm the truth. And so what practical value does this have for us? Let me suggest four things to go home and think about. I'm just going to give them to you. No elaboration. Number one, check your motives before opening your mouth. You really hate the sin? Or do you hate the sinner? Remember, we're all sinners. Number two, confess your own weaknesses before pointing the finger. Revisit Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, and Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. We are never to assume the role of Jesus Christ as judge, but we are to honestly seek to restore one another when we get off track. Number three, consider God's grace in your life before pronouncing judgment on the sin of someone else's. The more you realize what you've been pardoned from, the more apt you will be to forgive. Number four, never snuff out the candle of hope in the face of a sinner's shame. Never. Don't be a reed breaker or a candle snuffer. What do I mean by that? Christ comforted people with the hope of life before he ever condemned them 
with the despair of death and hell. He lived by the words written of him in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. That's how we should do it. Because there are people in our midst who are silently crying out, seeking to rid themselves of the shame of something in their past or even in their present. Whatever it is, you know what they need? They need Jesus. Are you going to give them Jesus? If you're one of those who can relate to the woman in John's gospel, then you need to know that you don't need to keep suffering in your shame. Okay? The Bible tells you that. I'm telling you that right now. There is a part of you that may shout, I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside. I deserve to be forgotten and rejected and abandoned. But I'm here to tell you that if you place your faith and hope in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Nothing. He's inviting you to come. Let me close with the words of Scripture. Psalm 103. Verses 10 through 13. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Thank goodness. Thank God. Nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, as far as Christ spread his arms to be crucified, He's removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Want to celebrate the best Father's Day in your life? Give your heart to your heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. Amen.